the, the somatic inquiry is really where the action is, I think. So much of practice is, is learning how to get comfortable with discomfort, I think. What, what would this be if I wasn't here? Seriousness is a crime in the court of God. It's a little more than slightly demented now. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining the Interval Yoga podcast. Today I am honored to be joined by Jonathan Faust, who is a guiding teacher with the Insight Meditation Community of Washington and a founder of the Meditation Teacher Training Institute in Washington. He's a senior teacher and former president of Kripalu Center. He leads retreats, trainings, and classes in the Washington, D.C. area and around the country and works individually with those interested in healing and spiritual awakening. He lives outside of Washington, D.C. with his wife, Tara Brock, and their slightly demented dog. So, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's really, really good to have this time with you. I did, do need to correct one thing there is that the dog is a little more than slightly demented now. Ah, <laughs> uh, is he still around, though? She, yeah, she, she's, she's hanging in there. She's hanging in there. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Has that been difficult to watch? The progression. No, it's fascinating. It's something, you know, as we age, one of the great things about having animals in your life is you get to watch the, you know, you get to watch the lifespan, you know, as hard and challenging and painful as that is. But, you know, and now as, as an older guy and having, you know, having uh, had multiple canine companions over life, there's this very interesting balance of of the, the deep care and the understanding of impermanence. So there's a, a real sweetness to, to being with her now. She's deaf and has trouble getting up and down stairs and she's still having a great time. So, yeah. This impermanence, uh, I find it to be one of the more challenging aspects of, of being alive. <laughs> that things change uh, and we can't hold on to the way that they were and we have no idea uh, what's what's to come. Uh, is that challenging for you as well, the impermanence? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And it's, you know, through the lens of Buddhist, you know, psychology or Buddhist philosophy, it's, you know, it's the first law of reality, you know, is that anything born of causes and conditions is subject to change. And when I remember that, everything's fine <laughs> when I don't, you know, and then there's the resistance and then there's the rope burn and the, the stress and the suffering that all comes in relationship to, to what's changing and how we're relating to it. Hmm. So I'm curious if, if gratitude is a way to kind of, um, I don't want to say deal with the impermanence, but maybe it is to kind of deal with the impermanence. I think that's how I do it in my mind. Um, and it's been a huge change in my life uh, since I would say I, I discovered the, the practice of gratitude um, when I realized that, wow, I'm not owed anything. I'm not owed a certain amount of time or experiences or anything, anything like that. I'm, I'm so thankful for the amount that I've had. Um, therefore, I can accept the impermanence uh, a, lot, a lot better. If I, if I didn't have that gratitude, then I think it would be more challenging for me to do that. Yeah, I think there are two approaches. I mean, one is to go in with gratitude, you know, which is the, which is the best and most profound state changer there is. 
the other lens is just to really reflect on impermanence. And when I just sort of sit with impermanence and I you know, sit with my, my deaf, cute little dog, you know, and, and realize that her time here is out of my control, then the byproduct is gratitude. Then there's just this explosion of, well, then all I have is now. And then it's almost an ecstatic experience when I can really track track the, the fact of impermanence all the way through. So uh, whether it's gratitude going in, it'll be gratitude going out if you hang, if you hang <laughs> in there with the reality of impermanence. <laughs> I love that because it's almost like I, I feel like nat that's what nature is is teaching us to do like nature wants us to discover gratitude. It's like, Oh, give you all of these things. Like you want to say, thank you. <laughs> you want to say, thank you. Yeah. I remember hanging out with someone and we were just having, we were, we were, we were like saying grace before a meal, you know, and he just casually commented. He said, wouldn't you say like the highest prayer is thank you. You know, and I was, that was so simple, but so profound that when we are in that state of thank you for this moment, it, it really does change things. Hmm. Yeah. For me too. And it does feel like, like the, the highest prayer. I also have noticed a difference between like thinking, thank you, thank you, or thinking about gratitude and feeling it in, in, in my being. And those, those are very different things. Do you have any reflection on that? Absolutely. You know, I think for, for many, many people, we, we sort of assume that the, the, like the locus of awareness is here, you know, like if, if you, if, if I ask someone, well, well, where is awareness? You know, where is attention? Can you locate it? A lot of people, they automatically go to the head, you know, but when you shift the center of gravity down into your body and into your heart, and then you have that resonant felt sense of gratitude. It's just a world of difference. You know, when you're really in that resonant place of gratitude in the, in, in, in the body and the, your soma, you know, it's just resonating with it. You're there, you know, the body doesn't lie. When you feel gratitude, when you really feel gratitude, you, you are in a very profound state. And of course, then that affects your, your emotions. It affects your thoughts. It affects your beliefs. But the, the somatic inquiry is really where the action is, I think. Mm. Has that been a, a practice for you, like uh, feeling into that place and then, OK, now I know how to do that and I know how to feel that. So I want to remember to feel that again. And, and has it gotten easier for you to, to go back there more often? You know, being a being a very cerebral oriented guy. You know, I, I always joke that, you know, that for the first 25 years of my life, I assumed that my the reason I had a head, my body was to make my head portable. You know, <laughs> that, that was just my, my my whole way of focus. But then when I stumbled into yoga, you know, it was yoga that, that really kind of shattered me in many ways when I realized that the body is actually a doorway. You know, it's a doorway to presence. The body only lives in the in the present moment. And then when I ran into Eugene Genlin and the work of focusing and somatic psychology, you know, this whole recognition of how our issues really are in our tissues. You know, I can I can try to think my way through something, you know, which is usually like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. But when I can sort of move into the somatic element of it, 
That's where profound transformation can occur. So it's been so profound for me that it's been primarily what I've done in terms of my teachings and in my offerings is this whole um, deep dive into somatic inquiry. So it makes me question, you know, what's what's the right or what's right relationship with the mind? Because the mind is is so amazing. It's fascinating what, what it's capable of doing, but then it also seems like what we're talking about, like it's gotten out of control and we're up in the mind all the, all the time and not, not experiencing the body. Um, and then also like the mind's ability to focus on different areas of the body and heal. And then the mind is also maybe the doorway towards kind of dropping down, uh, as you say. So what's that right relationship? Yeah, well, you know, as Ramdas said, you know, a wonderful servant, lousy master, mm-hmm. you know, that well, when the mind tries to establish itself as the ultimate authority, um, it's things get really kind of confusing, you know, and, and pretty messy, you know. But, uh, you know, just as you said, it is amazing what the mind can do. You know, you, you, you can you can focus your mind like a like a laser, you know, and when you're really, really focused, you can really, really get stuff done. You can also take that half step back to the mind and be the witness of what's changing and be the open monitor of what's passing through. And then you can open it even wider, you know, to just explore what it means to rest in presence. So the mind becomes this incredible focalizing tool. Um, And when it's in balance, that's when it gets really interesting. You know, I've always loved that, that whole, you know, that, that, that whole model of, at the base of who we are is just pure energy, you know, unrestricted, free-flowing energy, you know, prana, particles and waves of energy, you know, and then that free-flowing energy gets automatically interpreted by the body-mind as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You know, in Buddhism, it's referred to as Vedana. It's like the feeling tone. And then if we're not aware of, of the feeling tone and how it registers, then, then we move into, into the mind. We move into some reaction. I don't like this. I like this. Ooh, this reminds me of that. And if we're not aware of the thoughts, thoughts calcify into beliefs. And if we're not aware of how beliefs run our lives, then they form habits. If we're not aware of our habits. That forms our character. If we're not aware of our character structure. That becomes our destiny. So I kind of like that model because with awareness, we can explore on, on any one of those tiers. You can, you can, you can do a, an exploration of your character structure and get really, really powerful insights. You can look at your beliefs. You know, you can look at thoughts. And then, as we're often guided to in, through yoga and meditation, is we're invited to bring ourselves back to that fundamental arising of, of energy and our relationship to it. And sometimes we can actually be aware of what's arising and not go into the proliferation of, of stories and thoughts and beliefs and all of that good stuff. Hmm. Is that connected with a, a sense of, of security, like with the, with the self? Um, so, you know, I was... Uh, we were talking about, you know, my daughter and, and the way that she is, you know, uh, she doesn't have this self-conscious, you know, aspect to her. So can we reconnect with that kind of like, hey, I'm just this being and I'm just observing what's happening and I'm not taking myself so seriously. I'm not comparing how I rank 
compared to other human beings, like all of that, like I'm just, I'm just existing and I'm just interested in observing what this existence is like. That, that pure primal kind of innocence of presence, you know, I think we get glimpses of it. We get memory, you know, we get glimpses of those memories of, of that, of that innocence. And it's been said that, that part of, part of the, the spiritual journey is finding our, ourselves back in that place of innocence again. You know, we, we, we kind of start off with that, just have that fresh sense of, you know, world, the world is simply this field of infinite possibility. And then we start getting identified as a separate self. And then we build our list of aversions and attractions and we keep investing more and more into who we are as, as a separate being, which is always fueled with the fear of death. And that's why I think yoga and meditation is oftentimes referred to as dying while alive, you know, because we're, we're, we're seeing our preferences, we're seeing that conditioning and we're, we're returning again and again to that, to that sense of primal, you know, primal being as joyful as that can be. And as horrifically painful as that can be too. Is it a matter of, of slowing down? to a certain degree, like a matter of speed. Something like I, I question is like these things are happening. This idea of separation, not seeing clearly has a lot to do with just like the pace that I'm moving at, the pace that my mind is moving at, the pace that I'm moving at physically. So simply by by slowing down and kind of checking my speed a little bit, will that open up um, kind of my world to to seeing maybe some some glimpses of, of deeper truths? Well, I'm curious when you're like, when you're with your daughter and you're really, really kind of resonating with her around, around her experience, what's that like for you? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's totally a slowing down and there's this resistance to diving into that place because there's so much to do. And, and especially right now, more than ever, it's so easy to be distracted. So it's my phone and the screen and this and that it's a million different things that I can dive into doing, but to just sit down on the floor with her and just watch her, um, to not have any plan at all to just be there. And then before I know it, like I've entered her world a little bit and we're playing together and, and the right action just manifests naturally from, from doing that. But I think the, the original step was kind of in a way breaking through that, that barrier of, of not wanting to slow down. There was a part of me that didn't want to slow down. <laughs> it's, it's so true. It's so true. You know, there's this Zen teacher who, you know, who says that, he meditates for 30 minutes every day, except when he's really busy. And then he meditates for 60, you know, it's like the, the, the discipline to slow down, you know, when the mind just wants, the mind is this insatiable machine that just wants more, you know, which is why it's, I, I imagine it's at times an incredible gift, you know, to have that time with her. And then other times it must be a struggle to, to put your own mind in neutral and, and enter into her world. <laughs> Yeah. Makes me consider, is it, is it this like running away from, from reality and truth that we do? And, and does that have to do with a fear, maybe a fear of, of death, a fear of actually really engaging with the situation that we're in? 
Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I love the model of the glaciers, you know, that, you know, like the the very first mistake we make is, um, you know, avidya, you know, which literally translates as wrong knowledge, is we believe that we're separate. You know, and, and it, it must be fascinating for you, you know, to see your daughter start to develop an identity. You know, like uh, like I imagine at some point, you know, I'm this little being and I keep hearing this name and, it's, and suddenly there's like, oh, wait a minute, that name is me. You know, and then that, that formation of like, oh, I'm 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 a separate being, you know, and then then we move into gathering more and more evidence that 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 proves that we're a separate being you know and then from there we have our list of likes and dislikes and i imagine you're you're watching your daughter start to accumulate her uh, her list of preferences and her aversions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly big time you know it, it's a little it's a little sad too i mean I, I i accept it the fact that this conditioning is just a part of nature there's no way around it like she has to go through this this yeah. process of developing a certain sense of separation and identity uh and, and all of that but there also is a sadness in in watching it happen just because i <laughs> love so much her purity of of not uh not being in that in that world yeah yeah well i remember my brother once said look look hannah knows her name now and i was like don't do it, Hannah. Yeah, Don't exactly. do it. <laughs> Go back. Go back. It's the beginning of the end. <laughs> yeah. So, so part of it is like, at least through this model of the glaciers, is that we believe that we're separate, and that was some, that's the biggest mistake. Is we believe that we're separate, then we start investing more and more energy into who we are as a separate being. Then we have our list of aversions and attractions, which gets longer and longer as life goes by. You know, so that's why I'm always, you know, when you see people in their 80s, you know, their bandwidth of comfort can get so narrow because for many, for many people, the bandwidth of comfort gets so small because the list of aversions has gotten so big. But then the whole thing is driven by the fear of death, because what if you've spent your entire life pouring all of your energy into investing into who you are as a separate being and it's all going away? And that's where, that's where like part of like waking up to <laughs> impermanence, you know, it becomes so, so powerful. Actually, I marked down wanting to ask you about the, the term like waking, waking up or awakening. Um, and uh, just to kind of check in with you and see how you feel about like that term. And if you feel that um, that's what's happening now that, that, you know, do you have a sense that more people are, are waking up and is this an accurate way to describe kind of, um, what happens in spiritual work? There's a waking up. Yeah. You know, there's, I uh, was just reading uh, some very interesting dialogue around the, the term waking up versus enlightenment, you know, like wh 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 what is the difference, you know? And what I what I really come to, I, I love this quote from Pema Chodron, and when she she says um, she said, you know, I've always been jealous of people that have breakthroughs. She said, I've never I've never had like a massive breakthrough, but when I look back, I see that I'm 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 less stressed and I'm more free. 
just it's just for me, my path has been a path of gradual awakening. And the Buddha, again, I always use the word allegedly around the Buddha because nothing was written down, you know, until, you know, hundreds of years later, 150 years later or something like that. But, but there's this story of someone asked the Buddha, um, how do I know I'm making any progress? A fantastic question, you know, hmm. uh, because, there, you know, the joke, you know, if you meditate, you'll feel better. You know, you feel your sadness better. You feel your depression better. You feel your anger better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but you also feel your capacity for joy and compassion better as well. But he was asked, how do I, you know, how can I tell that I'm, I'm making progress? And the response was something along the lines of, are you less caught in greed, hatred, and delusion? And I think that's an incredibly powerful gauge. You know, how much am I more free from the incessant wanting of the mind? Am I am I more free from hatred, ill will, judgment, blame, all that stuff? And, um, and am I am I more free from from confusion about about what life and about what reality is? So I think I really think there is this element of like a progression. You know, I think we I think. When, when I look back, I do feel a lot more free. I feel, I feel less anxious. And that just may be age, but it may have something to do with my practice as well. Um, yeah, you know, one thing that I consider is, it seems that there's this tendency to, um, to not even recognize or realize the amount of progress that I've made, like, I think the, the now is so, is so strong a lot of times that I'm, I, we don't even give it credit. Like we want to be in the now, but like we are in the now, no matter what. Right. Um, and, and therefore it's like, we, we don't even acknowledge how much better it's gotten than it was in the past. And what I've learned from being a teacher a lot is that posit the positive reinforcement is a really powerful tool actually. Um, so I think about when training myself, like, oh, if I have made some progress, right. If I, if I am less, you know, greedy, um, then to acknowledge that will help me to make even more progress, you know, on, on that path. But I guess my, my question is for you, like, have you noticed this at all? Like a tendency to forget, you know, how much progress has been made, what it was like in the past. And then also, you know, forgetting that it could always be better. Right. Like it could always be so much better. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the other the other thing that happens for many people and certainly part of my path is, you know, I, I oftentimes think that like in practice, we get glimpses, you know, you know we, we get these glimpses when like the sky is clear, you know, and it's like those are the moment, those transcendent moments of, of, of happiness, of, you know, of radiance, of like just feeling the mystery and loving the mystery. And then when those moments fade, they can send you into really deep depression, you know, you know, and for me over, over, over the years. And, and, you know, I, I oftentimes credit my, my background, particularly in yoga, you know, my, my decades at Kripalu was in many ways, it was chasing lights and rainbows. You know, it was using, using yoga and all the yogic techniques was really powerful ways to change my state. And then having like these transcendent moments 
followed by a deep sense of loss of that transcendent moment and then a doubling down in grimness of getting back to my practice. Mm. You know, and over the years I've I've had some pretty profound, you know, insights into that into that mechanism. But but it is really really interesting to me of how when we have these glimpses, they can be really inspiring, but they can also kind of set us up a little bit. You know, for feeling like we're we're failing, like well, how do, why did I lose it? You know, what did I do to lose it? And um, and I do feel like there's something about uh, about the practice, and, and and I find this with depth practitioners, like people have been practicing for a long time. It's very paradoxical, you know, because when you when you're practicing deeply, what analogy, you know, at Kripalu, I used to supervise fasting programs, you know, and, you know, people, they're drinking water, they're drinking juice, they're putting in all this good stuff, they're, they're resting, and, and then they all go through detox, you know, like their system's getting rested enough where they can start, their body just automatically through its own innate intelligence starts ejecting all these toxins, you know, because now it's strong enough to eject, eject those toxins. And, Having a having a strong practice, you know, yoga and meditation is like like doing intense detox, you know. So we're we're, we're throwing off everything that isn't us, you know, because what what your practice will reveal is everything that's between you and feeling free. Everything between you and feeling free is up for grabs. So what happens is, and again, this is probably a gross overgeneralization, but. What I found is for myself and for many people, you start to practice and it's like these revelations, you know, you know, the, oh, I'm so relaxed. I feel, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was holding on to that. And now I feel so much more ease and that, oh, I can't, I, oh my God, I was believing that. And that I see now that that's just not true. And who I am without that thought feels so good. And there's sort of the, the, the revelations, you know. And then stuff starts coming up that's not so well-defined. It's not low-hanging fruit, you know? And, and this is a lot of where somatic inquiry comes in because there's something below the line of awareness that rises and it falls and rises and falls again. And it's taking us into our conditioning. And, and what I've found, and again, for myself, but for many others, is that a lot of that conditioning is pre-verbal. You know, a, a lot of the, the, the stress and the, the anxiety that we pick up, it's, those tracks are laid in really, really deep. And so on the one hand, you develop more of a witness. You know, you have much more access to non-judging presence, non-judging awareness, non-judging consciousness. But at the same time, you're also sensing what's so deep below the line that's sometimes really challenging to get at because it's not, a, not an intellectual process anymore. It's almost more like an, an energetic process. So uh, that's sort of a long way of saying, I'm not sure it gets easier, you know, as we go along. I, I think it gets more nuanced and it gets more challenging as we go along. Yeah, seems maybe both of, both of those things at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I do think it is both of those things at the same time. And, and certainly what I notice among people who, who practice for, for a good while, that they don't, they don't believe their thoughts quite as readily as most people do. 
You know, there's, you know, there's, uh, I think there's some pretty deep humility that comes from someone who's got a, got a pretty rich practice, you know, and more of that instinct to turn toward unpleasant, you know, so much of practice is, is learning how to get comfortable with discomfort, I think. It makes me think of, of our relationship with words too, and thoughts, right? That, um, it almost seems that there's like an addiction here. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but a huge emphasis on on the ability to describe what's happening with language. Um, and I, I feel like we, we forget that language was just this construct of, of man that tries to point at something, but it's not that thing. It's just, it's just the signpost directing us at that, that feeling, let's say. Um, and so my question is, is like, does that lead to a lot of suffering too? Because I'm, I'm again, and, and put me back up in the mind because I'm trying to figure out what these things are, even like, you know, below the line, like maybe it doesn't go above the line until I'm able to um, find the words to, to describe it as opposed to just like feeling it. I feel something, I feel some type of, of pain in the body perhaps. And, and instead of even putting words to it, I just, I just sit with it and notice what happens. Yeah. Well, you're a writer, so, you know, you've invested a lot of your life force into finding words that are accurate and true. And I was struck by a story that Eugene Genlin um, told, and he's the founder of Focusing, um, which is basically a, a very, very powerful approach for, um, for really exploring how your issues are in your tissues. And he really kind of laid the found the foundation for somatic psychology, really powerful stuff. But the story that I often like to tell about him is that he finished up his PhD in philosophy and realized he wasn't done. So he was working on a PhD in psychology. Um, and he was at the university, uh, university of Chicago studying with, um, oh my gosh, name just slipped right out. Carl Rogers. And so he was, he was given this task when it comes to like, like therapeutic technologies, what's the best technique and, and what, what makes for the best therapist. So he, he observed many, many hours of people doing kind of, you know, inquiry type work and, you know, in therapeutic situations. And this one moment triggered it for him. And it was this woman who was talking about her relationship with her sister you know, and she said, I am so pissed at my sister. And then she closed her eyes. And then she opened her eyes and she said, no, she said, I'm disappointed with my sister. And he thought, what just happened? Like, here's the story. I'm pissed. But she closed her eyes. She checked in somatically. The word pissed did not resonate with the feeling. And then when she came out again, it was like, then she had the word that resonated with the feeling. So I think as you were describing so beautifully, like there are times when you just, just stop the articulation, you know, and, and really drop into the feeling. This, this whole, this whole phrase, you know, that the body doesn't lie is a really interesting thing to try on. Like, is it true that like this innate intelligence of the body doesn't lie? And if we can really pause and tune into it, that there's, there's that, that resonance of truth 
when it's sort of resonating cellularly, you know, like as they say, you just you know it in your gut, you know it in your bones, and that becomes such a powerful part of practice. I think. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's like you know when we have conversations. You know, like we try to do the best that we can to describe what we want to describe. Right. And often there's like, you know, there's that word that that that's the perfect word for what I'm trying to say. Uh, but you can't quite find the word. So but you can't just wait. You know, you have to say something. Right. <laughs> so right. you do you pull out whatever whatever the next best thing is there. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting because, you know, uh, in, in neurolinguistic programming, they say we process information through three different channels. One is visual. So people who are visual. They tend to think in pictures. So they talk in pictures like, oh, can you imagine this? Well, this is how I see it. They talk fast because they have the image and they want to get it across as quickly as possible. And then there are people who are more auditory. They process auditory and they actually use, you know, they use words like, well, that sounds really good. You know, or no, that doesn't ring a bell. And then they're the then they're the people who are kinesthetic, and it's so interesting. And you can tell a kinesthetic person because, um, you know, they're um, they're slower because they're trying to, you know, um, tune in. <laughs> and it's so it's fascinating to me because uh, I tend to move toward the visual, uh, but what I find is if I give myself that permission to slow down. And it can be it can be really challenging, but it, I'm actually am in I actually am tuning in to to that to that resonant felt sense that it just it takes a, it takes longer to form, but when it when it does form, it's it can be pretty solid. I wanted to uh, I want to shift a little bit because I wanted to ask you about your relationship with with animals. So John, Jonathan is an amazing photographer. Uh, and if you get on his email list, he sends out, uh, I think, a monthly newsletter uh, and he'll share all these uh, beautiful photographs that he takes in, in nature. Um, so I know you, you you usually get out early morning, I think. Um, and uh, and it's a part of your practice. Right. And, and you're observing uh, different animals. So I mean, I'm curious how long you've been doing this and what the effect for you has been, like maybe some things that you've learned from observing animals. Mm, wow. Uh, well, I grew up on a farm. Um, so there are a couple things there. Uh, it, it got me in the habit of getting up early, um, but also working with animals has always been kind of a, a big part of my life. And one thing I found with COVID is, you know, my natural chronotype has emerged uh, you know, when I when my body really wants to sleep and when it wants to wake up, which kind of ridiculously is like going to sleep at 830 and getting up at 430. <laughs> so that gives me plenty of time to get out there and, um, you know, maybe out there when things are waking up. And, you know, it's so interesting to me of how being in nature, just observing, observing nature you know, observing these unselfconscious animals as they're moving, moving through their, moving through their life is so, it's so profoundly healing. You know, and I know like in, you know, in ancient Ayurveda, you know, like the, the prescription for many people was to be in nature, you know, just to remove distraction and, and be in nature. 
So I, I just love observing, you know, and, and interacting with, with animals out there because um, it's such a privilege to be out there. And also it's so impersonal, you know, they could care, they could care less <laughs> about my presence. And, you know, there are times when I'm, I do this practice, it's funny because I would do this practice and then, uh, and then I was sharing with my wife, uh, Tara, and then she would, told me she'd do the same thing. Like I, I, I paddle upstream on the Potomac river, which is pretty intense river. And then I just paddle until I get tired and I float back. And oftentimes I do kind of an open eyed meditation. And, and I have this sense of like when I'm floating back, sometimes we just think like, what if, what if I wasn't here? You know, what, what would this be if I wasn't here? And and suddenly it just becomes how it's just life happening. It's, it's just, it's just happening all by itself. And it's a really beautiful experience of uh, it, what's referred to in, 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 in Buddhism as anatta, which is the, the not self. Like when, when that separate self is not present or injecting itself into life, like, what is that? You know, and that really is that sense of the mystery is that sense of flow. So uh, uh, to me, that's just deeply, deeply healing. So I was doing that. And then I realized that Tara was kind of doing that same practice kind of spontaneously as, you know, she would, she oftentimes goes and meditates, you know, down by the river in the morning. How important uh, has it become for you to feel connected to not feel separate, to tune into this, okay, I am a part of something larger than myself. You know, it's a paradoxical thing to me because, in fact, I was just writing about this a little while ago. Like, when, when you're really in nature, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're just out there and you're just connecting with the elements, it's this paradox in that it's a pretty deeply uncaring world. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a sense of belonging that occurs, you know? And for me, it's like when I, when I can just feel these rhythms of life that are, that are so much more expansive than what's going on in my brain, um, there's a really profound sense of, I think maybe it's just a connection to reality, you know, that, that is so, um, so healing for me. One of the things I've really, I was looking back over a bunch of my images, you know, over the years, and, and I was really struck by how many of the images, the, the animals are actually looking right at me. You know, they're, like they're not, they're not running away, they're not fearful. And, uh, and I actually felt, I just felt this like, like this gush of warmth, you know, to be, to not be feared. You know, and to, like to see an animal and to be seen is a really beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful experience. And there's, and there's this phrase I use, I overuse all the time, <laughs> having to do with meditation practice that, that when these, when these elements arise that are between, you know, between you and feeling free, you know, maybe it's just that, you know, like that, that low grade sense of anxiety comes to the surface or a sense of dread or anxiety about something. And, and the analogy is like that they are like wild animals at the edge of the woods. You know, that when, when those, when fear, anxiety, strong emotions arise, 
if we can see them as wild animals at the edge of the woods, where you, you, can't, you can't seduce it in, and you can't chase it and capture it, because that's not going to happen either. But you can let it know you see it. You know, like, like when you see a deer in the woods, and, you know, it knows that you see it. That, that establishes this really beautiful, intimate connection with, with some force, uh, either out there or some force in there, you know, as, as we're practicing. Does that, does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. Got a bunch of questions that all want to come up at the same time now. <laughs> um, you mentioned this connection to reality. And um, I'm thinking about that, if that's really what the heart wants the most, to just be in alignment with uh, reality. And maybe that's connected to also what, you, what you're saying about of, of, of just looking at it, right? Like, so the heart doesn't want us to keep running, running away from what is. It wants us to, to turn and, and, and face it. Absolutely. And, you know, as, um, as someone said, these aren't my words, but but I really come to resonate with them as how we can view life through through like a, a lens of optimism, you know, and that optimism can be healthy, but there can be a shadow side to the optimism. You know, and we can we can focus through a lens of pessimism. You know, again, which can have a, a, have some degree of like clear discernment, but also have a negative built-in negativity bias. And I realized I realized for myself that that it's not about being optimistic and it's not about being pessimistic. It's about being realistic. You know, and I and I really feel like any spiritual tradition that's worth its salt is a reality-based, just a reality-based practice. You know, and that's what, it, what what keeps pointing to is what is it that is true that was true thousands of years ago that will be true thousands of years from now. One of the things that, that's true for me, I think I'm more and more important, is to acknowledge my limitations of of knowing. All right, so it's like the the humility aspect um, for me that is that is very very real that. I, I don't know, you know, and that it's okay not to have opinions. And I notice a lot of suffering that, that comes both externally, I witness it, and also within myself from thinking that I need to have an opinion about everything or that I can be a judge of like the unfoldment of humankind and like the planet, like, like I can know that in any kind of real term. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when you sent me the invitation to, you know, for this podcast, you had, you know, you had a place for me to put my bio and, and I wrote down, you know, last year, foolish monk, this year, no change. <laughs> there is something I've found about really embracing that, you know, really embracing the not knowing. It's just a, in Zen, you know, they call it don't know consciousness. Like, is it possible to really, really just embrace that, you know? And yeah. Yeah. And, I love that you ask the question a lot, like what is between me and, and feeling free? Maybe what is between me and something I've, I've really kind of taken that. And I asked that in many, many different ways, but, um, that's one thing that's, that's clear to me, uh, that's between me and, and feeling free is, is the knowing, 
right? Like when, when I feel like I need to know and need to do a certain, certain number of things, I'm not feeling free. But if I am really like, I don't know, and I'm okay with that. I feel free. I feel light. It's fine. You know, there's a teacher actually both, uh, I, both you and I know in the Kripalu tradition who has a great, cause we were talking about what, so this awakening enlightenment thing, what the, you know, what is it? And he said, this is so simple, but I think oftentimes the best truths are, are the most simple. He said, what if it's just the absence of desire? And that's so, that just, well, I keep coming back to that. Like, wow. So, so who am I in the absence of desire? You know, and in those moments, you know, when you're without desire about being someone who knows, that really is, that's freedom. It, it may just be a, may a, be a glimpse, but that's, that is freedom. And I think it's about stringing those little moments of glimpses together. It brings up another word for me, and that word is, is mature, uh, which is a word that I'm actually very interested in. What does it mean to be, to be mature? And I would say, actually, not having desires or maybe having less desires uh, is connected with uh, maturity. You know, I, I, I love that, that word maturity, you know, it shows up a lot in, 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 in Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy, you know, that because when we, when we sort of start off and a great example is, is faith, you know, that, because sort of childish faith is, is magical thinking, you know, of like, well, if I just, if I just think happy thoughts, everything will be okay. You know, then there's, there's another level of, of faith, you know, which is, Tell me what to believe, and, and I'll believe it because I, I want to belong to this tribe, you know. But then mature faith is, you know, for example, if you hear everything born of causes and conditions is, is subject to change, it's actually embracing skepticism and saying, wait a minute, is that, nah, is that true? And then rigorously investigating. And then, and then if that's true, that's mature faith, you know, and so it's just this beautiful element of like embracing, embracing skepticism and understanding that part of the flowering of that is that sense of mature faith. And it's something I guess, cause I, I just, I just got on the Medicare this year. So the whole idea of maturity is, uh, is something that's really playing through my consciousness these days, <laughs> you know, and, and just recognizing that, you know, over years of practice and just years of life, like what that, that maturing process I find to be so, so interesting. Yeah. And there's like a resistance for me, you know, like multiple selves, the resistance towards uh, moving into the realm of, of mature, like the old self, the other self doesn't, doesn't really want to go there and investigate. Okay. Like, what does it really mean to be mature? <laughs> I got a great reframe from from that. I was on a on a meditation retreat. This is, gosh, thirty years ago. But a really intensive meditation retreat, and um, and uh, and I, I just at some point in one of the breaks, I was looking at myself in the mirror, and um, and I had this this moment of like, uh, sort of like seeing my image looking back at me as like an older guy, like in my sixties, you know, like balding and but really, really happy. And, um, 
And it was, it was kind of a startling moment, like seeing my face aged, you know, and, you know, balding and, but also, but getting like, this guy was really, really happy. And I just thought, I'm going to totally anchor that. Like, what if getting older means I'm just more and more happy and more and more free? And then not a lot long ago, I was, I was brushing my teeth, looking in the mirror and I realized, oh my God, I'm that guy. I'm now that old guy looking back at myself when I was 30. And I I am so much more happy. And so and why not why not view aging, you know, as the possibility of of being less caught in greed, you know, less caught in hatred and less caught in confusion. Um, that's how I'm wiring it for myself, you know, and so far I hope so good. Yeah, that's not how I'm trying to wire it too, and I think that's where the skepticism comes in a little bit, because um, you know, I'm skeptical about the notion to be sad or depressed uh, about my aging, and to oh man, it was so great when I was 20, you know. Um, what I don't know that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't do it for me. I, I, I don't know. I'm not embracing the flow of time. I'm not, I, again, I'm, I feel like I'm moving away from reality instead of, of turning to face what, what reality is, you know? You know, I was in the car once and I remember like when I, when I had to stop running, you know, and, and seeing someone running going like, oh man, I used to be able to do that, you know? And it was not that long ago, maybe just like a year ago, I'm driving along and I see someone running and, I, and, I, and, I, and my, my response was like, isn't that great? They can still do that, you know, because <laughs> yeah. we're all in this together, you know, we're all in this together. One kind of new thought for me, actually, in the last few days or insights, I should say, um, it's been like this tendency to want to experience everything. Like, uh, yeah, desire to just, uh, I don't know, to have so many experiences, do so many different things in the time that I have. Uh, and then, then I realized that like, wow, like I haven't really been considering like what my lane is and considering the fact that like in this time of life, like dealing with the, the finality of it all, like I'm not going to be ex able to experience everything. And, and that's okay. And kind of this more peaceful clarity has come over me and just say like, that's totally fine. Now just decide like what your intention is for your lane of this life. Uh, so I'm kind of excited about that insight a little bit. It's new for me. You know, it's interesting. There've been studies, you know, as people age, how, you know, like as much as like, you know, pain and illness is part of aging, that there's something very paradoxical and that a lot of people as they age get happier. And, and, and part of the theory is that you, part of the reason why they're happier is they actually have less choice and having less choice is kind of calming. Mm. Like it just hit me the other day, like the window for my NFL career is probably, probably <laughs> pretty quickly here. <laughs> just hit you the other day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but it's like, you know, like we used to say back in the ashram, you know, no car, no car problems, you know, no relationship, no relationship problems. So there is something about about like, oh, this these are the cards I've been dealt. This is what I've got. And and there can be a real uh, a, not only just a coming to peace with that, but there can be more and more of an embracing of what of what's here. Yeah, you know, the no car, no problem thing. Um makes me think about, you know, just a simple life and what that means. 
a little bit and, and the way our culture tends to operate and the messages that we're, we're giving out. Um, and one thing that I, at least I, I feel very kind of strongly about, I would say, is, is a call for uh, more of a simple life to celebrate simple living, right? Because there's not room for everyone to be super wealthy and, and famous. So that's only setting that as the standard for success is only going to leave so many people depressed and depressed people is not good for anyone to have a bunch of depressed people around. But yeah. there's plenty of room for everyone to uh, have a simple life that that feels okay and fine. Yeah. It was, you know, it was Werner Erhard who said that the quickest way to be happy is to choose what you already have, hmm. you know, and that's such a, that's such a profound statement, you know, but, but absolutely. I've certainly found that for myself, you know, that the more I simplify, the more bandwidth I have for, for presence. And why I like to say, that, you know, like nothing material is going to make you happy, uh, with the exception of a few specific Apple products. <laughs> uh, okay, final question then uh, on, on the lines, like the role of of humor and light lightheartedness on the on this path. Like, how important is it? Recently, I'm I'm trying to engage my days and look for any opportunity to laugh. And, and it's been a game changer. So, right, it can be kind of like heavy and I do love the seriousness, there's no problem with it. I think you feel similarly, like no no problem with that. Um, but also to, to laugh and to feel light and, and all that, how important is that? Oh boy, you know, I know both you and I have been influenced from the, through the Kripalu tradition, but there's something that Swami Kripalu said and Swami Kripalu was this, Amazing yogi, you know, I, he, he died before, just before I moved in the ashram, you know, in the early 80s. But by all accounts, you know, this guy who practiced silence for 19 years and 10 hours a day of meditation and, you know, touched into nerva culpus samadhi states and, you know, pretty, pretty amazing character. He does one line where he said, seriousness is a crime in the court of God. Mm. I thought, whoa, I'm going to run with that one. And you have been running you, with that one. I have been running with that one, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true. In the absence of comparison, in the absence of judgment, in the absence of desire, you know, there's, there's joy, there's discovery, there's creativity, there's embracing a paradox, you know, and that's where the action is, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I think our relationship with death is kind of um, connected to this too, right? Like it's, it's been challenging, but to shift because I'm really turning towards reality. Nature is saying, okay, it's not such a big deal. Like things are born and they die all the time, but we tend to treat it as like, okay, again, we know that this, this is awful. Well, how do I know that that's awful? How do I really, really, really know that? Um, so I, there's for me, at least still a lot of kind of growth in that relationship with death, but I'm, I'm investigating it. And I think it leads towards this lightheartedness because I'm not like super serious about what happens. Just, this is the, the Leela, the play, the play of the universe that we're engaging in. You know, and kind of like back to that sense of the separate self, you know, I know when, you know, when I went through my parents dying, 
you know, and really kind of caught in the, you know, sort of the tragedy and a hurt of that. And then realizing, I mean, it's so cliche to even say it out loud, but this recognition of like, hey, you know, guess what? I'm not the first person to lose a father, you know, you know, like, like in the Tonglen practices, other people feel this too, you know, like, wow. So this is the human experience of, you know, you, you lose the people you love, you know, you lose parents, you, you lose friends. And this is not unique to me, you know, and, and here I am in my now on, on Medicare is like, well, what's the next big transition? Oh, well, guess what? I'm not the, not going to be the first person to to slip out of my body here. Mm-hmm. And there's something, I, I don't know if we call it comforting, but there's something real about that, that, that I'm beginning to digest as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, this time is, uh, is really valuable for me. Um, I said before, you know, I, I consider you one of my teachers and uh, kind of just discovering you, I feel like it was a great, great moment in, in my life. So um, thank you for, for being who you are and for joining me today for this conversation. Um, I know you're, you're doing a lot of different things. Uh, if, if someone would like to kind of follow up and, and check out more, more of your work, um, I know you have the podcast, YouTube channel, website, what's, what's the best way? Just just go to the website or what would you say? Yeah. First, first, just to say, thank you. You know, what a bright light. You're, you're such a bright light. And, uh, I, have always enjoyed every, every moment I've had, um, hanging out with you. So thank you for that. Yeah. My, uh, my stuff is kind of offered freely. You know, I'm, I'm very influenced through the Buddhist tradition of, uh, you know, teachings are priceless. So don't charge. So, uh, I've got a podcast, um, just Jonathan Faust and my website and, you know, all the, not all, I actually, I don't have Instagram or anything like that, but there, there's Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's just a joy to be able to, a joy to be able to share these practices. I mean, what a, what a great life. I feel so blessed. Mm. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.